0: Well, good morning, faith family. Good morning. I feel like I'm entering into a boxing match every time I hear that music, <laughs> right? Maybe I am, right? Hey, want to say hello to all the people in uh, our venue this morning. We are uh, live with them and so excited. Thank you so much and uh, appreciate uh, uh, them being in there and let's worship together as we continue to go through the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're continuing through our series in Acts and uh, I don't know about you, but at this point, I feel extremely inadequate uh, to be preaching through this book. It, it, it is so uh, highlighting areas of my life that need growth and conformity to Christ. If, if I really want to be a person on mission, if we really want to be a church that's on mission, boy, the book of Acts will make us feel extremely uncomfortable, and I promised you that from the very beginning. So if you feel that tension, if you feel that, that rub, that's okay, that's a good thing. That's a part of growing in conformity to Christ on the mission of Christ, okay? So let's look at Acts chapter 4, Are you ready? Let's do this. Are you sure you're ready? Yeah. All right, well, if you're ready, let's stand for the reading of God's word. You know, I was sharing with somebody earlier, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Now, now we talk about that a lot here. But here's what that also means. We can't be ashamed of the implications of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see. Luke writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, I uh, ask that our lives would count. There are a thousand different things that would fight for the purpose of our life. Give us, O God, by your Spirit, the grace to say that Jesus and his mission is the very purpose in which we exist to bring you glory. By being a witness to your grace. That's my prayer. And I don't even know that we fully know what that means. So Spirit, we are so desperate for you to teach us now, convict us now, lead us now to Jesus. In whose name I pray. And God's people said, Amen. 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 You can be seated. Some of you are old enough to remember the scene. The location was Clark Air Force Base. The occasion of the moment was the long awaited homecoming of 143 servicemen. Men who had spent the last eight years of their life as prisoners of war in North Vietnam. Men who'd been beaten. And tortured, and faced all kinds of adversity, and they were coming home. And some of you may remember that that moment as they stepped out of the airplane onto that portable staircase, and it became obvious at that very moment that, through the suffering that they had endured, some of them were bent over, some were crippled. And the highest-ranking officer in that group, a 48-year-old naval captain by the name of Jeremiah Denton, took his place behind a microphone. Hands shaking, his voice was quivering, and all he could say was, it was an honor to serve our nation during difficult circumstances. We are profoundly grateful To our commander in chief and our nation for this day. And then he paused. He emotionally only had the energy for one more sentence God bless America. And he took a few steps forward and collapsed. Into the arms of his family. Moments like that stir us. They, they they stir our emotions. For a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons is because there there, there is something beautiful about unity that comes out of adversity. When it's more than just a hug, it's more than just an embrace, it's something deeper than that. It is a a unity come out of tremendous adversity. We see it in things like that all the time. But in other areas, a a, a team that refuses to unravel, a, a marriage that refuses to give up when times are hard, an organization that perseveres through difficult circumstances because we've all experienced in some way that sometimes it is through the ashes of adversity that comes the beauty of unity. It's Acts 4. You see, dear friends, up until this point, in many ways, it's the best of times. The the church has been born. The Spirit of God has come down. Jesus is being proclaimed. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ and being baptized. It's awesome. It's revival. It's the best of times. But in many ways, it's the worst of times. The beginning of Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, hear what's going on and they want to shut it down. They do not want another word of Jesus to be breathed. They bring in the apostles. They are arrested. They are threatened. In Acts chapter 5, they will be beaten and tortured. They are prisoners in a spiritual war. And it's not just the apostles. We know historically that all the believers were facing persecution by this time. The Jews hated Christians because they had converted from Judaism. The Romans hated Christians because they were no longer worshiping Roman gods. In fact, they would often blame natural disasters on the Christians because they thought that the Roman gods were angry because the Christians did not worship them. Christians at this point were being fired and refused to be hired simply because they were Christians I told you last week there is no mission without persecution but out of the ashes of adversity comes the beauty of unity verse 32 This is amazing Now the full number of those who believed were of 1 heart and soul. Do you get that? Understanding the the background that's going on here, understanding what's taking place, do you see the beauty of that? That persecution didn't destroy them, it united them. They're not hiding. They're not afraid. They're not reconsidering the mission or this Jesus thing. They are committed to one another in one heart and soul. It's beautiful. And here's what it means. Think about it. Nobody's arguing over the color of the carpet. (laughs) There are no worship wars. No fights over translations. No somebody parked in my parking spot or sat in my seat, which just goes to show you they weren't Baptist. I've been Baptist all my life. I can say that. They are one heart and soul. Why? Persecution has a way of making you focus on what really matters. Adversity has a way of stripping away all the secondary things so that you can focus on the primary thing. What Was this unity based on this one heart and soul? Oh, look at the text. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. What was the basis of their unity? Their commonly shared belief in Jesus Christ. It's what brought them together in the midst of adversity. In the midst of persecution, they were of one heart and soul because they were believers. Hear me, faith family, this is a word for us. They saw each other as family. It's why I call you a faith family. We are blood. Not the blood flowing through your veins The blood dripping from the cross of Calvary. These people saw themselves as they were, a people purchased by the blood of Christ. And therefore, their unity wasn't something that they created, their unity was something that God created through the cross. Ephesians 2. Listen to what Paul says in verse 14. For He, Jesus, Himself is our peace. He's what brings us together. Who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. I'm so glad you're here. But I have to ask you something. Is church something you attend or a people to whom you belong? Is church something you attend? Or is it a people to whom you belong? Do you see your faith in Jesus as having direct implications to your unity with his people? For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Your identity with Jesus has everything to do with your belonging to his bride. They got that. It's why in the midst of hell-like persecution, they are of one heart and soul because they are believers in Jesus. What does this look like for you? There are 10,000 sermons in my mind right now. For some of you, it means membership. I know what some of you are saying. Oh, that whole membership thing. That's just an administrative hoop you're supposed to jump through. Wrong. Paul writes to a local church in Rome, you are members of one another. I absolutely believe that the New Testament teaches that there is a formal outward belonging and commitment to a local expression of God's people. And some of you, maybe you've been here for a while and that's great, but it may be time for you to say, I need to commit and belong to these people. Maybe it's not membership, maybe it's engagement, like you've just been sitting on the sidelines and it's going to have be a really hard time interpreting one heart and soul in your life while you're in the bleachers. I told you I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm also not ashamed of the implications of the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus brought you into a family, and that has implications for your life. Am I preaching? It feels like I'm (laughs) preaching. It's because if we say we want to be a church on mission, we need to know what that means. They were of one heart and soul. For some of you, and I'll move on from this, it means forgiveness. You've said things about other believers you need to repent of, it's family bought with blood from your Savior. Oh, I'm sure they disagreed. They're humans. You get two Christians in a place, you've got three opinions. We all know that. And Of course they disagreed, but they were one. And there were implications of what that meant and how they spoke about one another and acted towards one another. You may need to walk away today from one heart and soul by simply going to your brother going to your sister and asking for them to forgive you for what you've said or what you've done. Because nothing hinders the mission of God more than the disunity of His people. Mark this. Failure to live in unity with Christians is failure to be Christian. They were believers in one heart and soul. So, how did this get expressed? Okay, so they're one. How do we know they're one? Uh, they all voted Republican <laughs> or Democrat. They all like Taylor Swift. Heavens, no, please. <laughs> They were all from the same hometown. They, they, they all went to the same school. They, they, all, you know, they all must have been like one another. It's not how they express their unity. Let's let the text determine the expression of their unity. We know why they're unified. It's their faith in Jesus. So what did their unity then look like? Read the rest of the verse And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now I know they're not Baptists. I cannot tell you how inadequate I feel to preach this text, but it is the Word of God. The expression of their unity was sacrificial generosity. How do you know a church is united, Jesus is exalted, and the mission is advanced? Through radical, or what we would call radical, it's probably normal if you read the New Testament, generosity. And and, and let me just ask a few questions about the text. Who was generous? But they had everything in common. Who's the they? Go to the first part of the verse. The full number of those who believed. How many believed? Go back to verse 4 in chapter 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, there are the believers of verse 32, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's insane. That's 5,000 men. I've already told you in previous weeks that may be 10,000 people. It may be 20,000 people. We don't know. But let's just go with the 5,000. Can you imagine 5,000 men fully united in generosity towards one another? That's something only the Spirit of God can do. Who? All of them. All who believed. And and when did they do this? When they offered a next campaign. (laughs) On Generosity Sunday. As long as everything was going good in the church. No. Luke uses verb tenses here that indicate this was ongoing. And do you know why we know this wasn't just a one-time thing? Look at Acts chapter 2, before the 5,000 believed of chapter 4. Here I go preaching again. Let me read it. Acts two forty four and all who believed that's a different group, all who believed that's the 3,000 of chapter 2, were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It was not a one-time reaction. It was a consistent reaction faithfulness. Who? Everybody. How often? All the time. What did they give? The things that you give to goodwill. The the clothes your children have outgrown. Your old golf clubs. The, the, The ashtray your uncle brought back from Vegas and you don't even smoke. No, the the hand-me-downs. Is that what the text says? The text says, but they had everything in common. Let me get this straight, because my job is to faithfully proclaim the Word of God to you, all the people, all the time, with everything. Some of you are thinking, that's Communism. It's not communism. Do you know why? Some people you know have tried to take Acts 4 and Acts 2 and try to show that. Here's why we know that it's not that they did it on their own. Prove it. Look at verse 37. Talking about Barnabas, he sold a field that belonged to him. Who did it belong to? Him. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. Now talking to Ananias. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you could do with it whatever you wanted to do with it. If you're with me, say yes. yes. It's yours. It's yours. Here's the beauty of the unity through generosity is nobody was commanding, nobody was twisting arms, nobody was making people feel guilty, nobody was saying, yeah, but the Old Testament says they were simply voluntarily giving up of everything for the sake of the mission of Jesus. Everybody, all the time, with everything, why? Because they didn't see their stuff as their own. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just read the verse that said it was theirs. It was theirs. But here's the attitude that they had. Verse 32 again. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said That any of the things that belonged to him was his own. I own it. But I'm not the real owner. Do you see it? Everything I have has been given to me from God. Which means I've offered to God when I became a part of the people of God a blank check and what was the result I feel the tension to the result was this verse 34 there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold All right. before I step on your toes I cut my feet off you need to know that and here's how God convicted me this week I love it when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house (laughs) I shouldn't say that I mean seriously when I see them out the window I'm pulling chairs together I got the I got the Keurig going I mean it's just like come on in we got all day and I never I'm not trying to be deceitful but I never ever let him let him know I'm a pastor okay it's it'd be unfair so um, <laughs> I uh, I just let him talk and I'll ask questions and uh, particularly I'll ask questions about Jesus What do you believe about Jesus what do you believe about Jesus what do you believe about Jesus and they'll say well we believe that Jesus was a created archangel in the Old Testament Michael so he's a created being Comes to earth, lives obediently, and then is made divine. So he's a created being that has not always been divine. Well, I know in my mind that's heresy, known as Arianism, resurfaced. So I will go, where would you go? I go to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they'll pull out their Bible and they'll say, no, it says, was a God, and and I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but I'll pull out my Greek New Testament. Yeah, I know. It's totally unfair. And I'll say, actually, according to the Greek, it says he was with God and was God, to which they leave. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, what are you going to do? Now, I say that because... It is a very common practice for us as evangelicals to use the Bible as the standard of what we believe. Amen? Amen. We we can't believe that Jesus was created because the Bible teaches that he is God and is eternal. It's it's why we will love people who disagree with us on marriage, but we will say, according to the Word of God, God has spoken on what marriage is and how it reveals Him. We will say, I'm glad that you want to be a good person, but the Bible says you're not saved by your good works. It is grace alone through faith alone. The Bible is our standard for what we believe. Amen? Amen then why is the Bible not the standard in which we base our Christian experience? Evangelicals are really good on the first one and can be really lousy on the second. What I mean is if you read the New Testament and took the repeated themes of what the Christian experience looks like, would it match yours that's why i feel so inadequate. <laughs> because i think if you read the new testament you wouldn't assume that hey i went to church and therefore i did my christian thing because church isn't something you go to it's a people to whom you belong and I don't think you'd read the New Testament, because I know some of you are here, particularly my generation, maybe younger, uh, and you'd say, what, you talk about money? I'm out of here. If you read the New Testament, what would you conclude about the issue of generous living? The Bible cannot be your standard only for theology. It must also be the standard for how you live. Say amen. Which means to American evangelicals broadly, if the shoe fits, wear it, because I think we are a generous people and I love the way you give. So if the shoe fits, wear it. But American evangelicals need a Holy Spirit revival when it comes to generosity. In 1916, giving 2.9 percent. In 1933, during the Great Depression, 3.2. In 1955, during times of affluence, 3.2. By 2002, when America was 480 percent richer, 2.6. Here's the point. We can be a people who profess the inerrancy of Scripture except for the passages on sacrifice. We can be a people who sing, I surrender all, except for the all part. But until you and I see that Jesus is not an add-on to your life, but is the very purpose of your life, we will continue to call sacrificial what may be in reality comfortable. There is no mission without persecution, and there is no mission without sacrifice, because a mission that costs you nothing will accomplish nothing. They were one heart and soul. How was that expressed? All people, all the time, with sacrificial generosity. For the sake of the mission of God. That's why when I say we want to be a church on mission, but do we really know what that means? What does that mean for you? See, here's what I'm not going to do. It'd be very easy for me to go law and commandments and guilt. I refuse. I'm simply going to point you to the cross and say in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ what are the implications for you as you live out the mission of God There's an enemy to this Oh my goodness Satan hates it when you're one heart and soul He hates it when you're totally sacrificing yourself for the mission of God. So notice what Luke does. He gives us two examples. And I don't have a ton of time to unpack all this, so I'll I'll get quickly to the point. But let's look at the examples. In verse 36, he gives us the example of Joseph, known as Barnabas. And what does he do? In verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's example one. Example two. By the way, there was no chapter five when Luke wrote that. You, You realize this. So this example is meant to come right after Barnabas. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, they kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. Laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 5, and when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed. His last. What in the world? If you're tracking the flow of the text, here's what you've got to be asking. We see their unity and how it's expressed. So, why in the world is Luke giving us these examples immediately following? Here's why he's showing you what the enemy is to the unity and generosity of the church. Let me read from Matthew 6 which paints the backdrop for I believe what Ananias and Sapphira are doing and then I'll make the point and move on. Because what you might say is this is simply an issue of greediness versus you know sacrifice. Maybe, but it's deeper than that. God teaches us here. Here's Matthew 6, Jesus said beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven thus when you give to the needy that's acts four. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's happening in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira? Is it simply that they're greedy? I don't think so. It's this. They want the appearance of Of generosity without the inconvenience. Everybody else is giving this way. I've got to look good so I'll promise something, though I have no intention of actually following through. It's not that their heart is filled with greed, it's that their heart is filled with self. It's how I look. And it's exactly why Peter says, you've lied to God. Because hypocrisy, oh, oh, hypocrisy is not living inconsistently. Hello, we all do that. Amen? Amen. Hypocrisy is trying to make yourself look better than you actually are. It is self-righteousness. What's your point? The better question is what's Luke's point? And here it is. It's beautiful. Nothing will kill unity. Nothing will limit generosity. Nothing will hinder the mission more than the mission of self. It is like in one of my all-time favorite movies, Remember the titans. Anybody with me? Remember that? We've got a mission, but we, we can't fulfill the mission as long as there are competing agendas as you're learning how to act with one another and getting rid of self. And you'll remember that scene where the coach wakes them up at like 3 a.m. in the morning and he takes them on a run because he wants to teach them a valuable lesson. It is the lesson of Acts 4. Take a look.
1: Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight and we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here, is painted red bubbling with blood, young boys, smoke, and hot lead pouring right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, man. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen. lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now on this hollow ground, we too will be destroyed. Just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe... Learn to play this game like men. Hear me. When it comes
0: to the mission of God, our church will either die to self or we will die because of self. They were one heart and soul expressed through sacrificial generosity the enemy to that is the mission of self so how do we fight it and we're done if you know me you will not be surprised verse 33 and with great power the Apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It is why I constantly put the gospel before you. Because the gospel of grace is um, the medicine for our disease to want to exalt ourselves. The gospel is the medicine that helps maintain the unity that Jesus has already established. Three statements and I'm done. Number one is this. The gospel reminds us that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. It is only by God's grace that you're even a part of his people. How in the world would you want to do anything to cause his people to be ununified, to be pulled apart, to be divided? When we understand it's only by God's grace that I'm even a part of his people. I want to do everything I can to maintain the unity of his people. Do you see? The gospel of grace is what Encourages us to pursue unity among the people of God. Here's the second statement The gospel reminds us, reminds me, I deserve nothing, but He's given me everything. I don't deserve money. I don't deserve family. I don't deserve this job. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve anything. It's only by God's grace that I have anything. And therefore, if I really understand his grace, I'd be willing to sacrifice everything. There's a whole other sermon I want to go down, but I don't have time. The gospel of grace reminds us that we deserve nothing, but he has given us everything. And so if we are called then to sacrifice everything, what would keep us from it? Third and final. Oh, The gospel reminds us that our goodness doesn't come from what we give him. Anybody really thankful this morning that your righteous standing before God is not how much you give? (laughs) What a horrible idea that would be. Here's where your righteousness from God comes from, what he has given you. So you don't have to give like a hypocrite. That is to give and sacrifice in a way of making yourself look good in the eyes of others. Why? Because your goodness is found in the righteousness of another. And when we live under this waterfall of grace, it is only by God's grace that I'm in the people of God. It's only by God's grace that I have anything. It's only by God's grace that I can give, not for goodness, but because of His goodness to me. Only as we live under the waterfall of grace will we understand what it's like to be a people who are united and generous. Sometimes it is from the ashes of adversity that comes the beauty of unity. After all, before Jesus was carried off to be a prisoner of war, beaten, tortured, and killed. He prayed one thing. Do you remember it? John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe that they may be one. Let's pray. Wow, God. I don't know what this means for everyone in this room, but uh, I'm trusting that your Spirit will come now and make that clear. When it comes to unity, when it comes to generosity, when it comes to sacrificing self for the sake of your mission please speak to us i will not give law we will give grace but underneath the waterfall of grace is an action a calling something that you're asking us to do Out of the grace in which you've given. So, Holy Spirit, make that clear to us. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.